Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare ridiculous crime is a production of iHeartRadio. hey dave zarin burnett Yo, man, I got a a note here at a headquarters from Elizabeth. It says she's out this week. She was apparently called into duty last minute, something for her secret society. But that's all I know about it. So anyway, I guess it's just you and me this week. You down? I'm down. Yeah, let's do this. I figure we got got this one, right? So I got to ask you, do you know what's ridiculous? What what, what is that? Why are you putting your hand out? Uh, I mean, I might know what's ridiculous. Wait, is this like the old shoeshine bit where I got to give you like like a Hamilton, a Jackson? Yeah, right. I'm, I'm saying Alexander Hamilton might know what's ridiculous. All right, I, I, I got a Jackson on it. How about does Jackson uh, loosen those lips? Uh, he might know a little bit. I don't know if he really know. How about a Franklin? Would Franklin loosen them lips? Absolutely. Franklin knows what's ridiculous. All right, Franklin does it. Thank you. Okay, here's what's ridiculous. Lay it on me. Cold dogs. Like... Have you ever seen a dog coming out of the uh, of a lake and it's freezing out and it's just like dripping with water and it just, it looks so sad and it deflated? Oh yeah, saddest sight there is. I thought you meant like the opposite of hot dogs, like there's a new food. Because I'm so trained with Elizabeth mashups, I'm like looking for the mashup. So no, Dave, what is about a cold dog that you find so ridiculous? Other than the fact, yes, they look so sad. Well, it's funny you would say that. I mean, because those are ridiculous, but another th- kind of cold dog that's ridiculous Uh-huh. Is the Oscar Mayer cold dog. Oh, my God. You did it. Oh, my God. The Oscar Mayer cold dog is a hot dog flavored frozen pop. <sighs> and um, uh-huh. I'm listening. Oh, I'm listening. It visibly re- resembles a hot dog topped with mustard uh-huh. and has, quote, smoky umami notes of Oscar Mayer's iconic wiener. <laughs> I can't believe I cannot believe you did this to me. Listen, what can I say? I, you know, I really need to embody the role. I, I, I felt like it wouldn't be the same if I didn't give you back the energy that you expect. Yes. No, I, I see you see me. I saw I was expecting it. I was looking for it and I still didn't see it coming. Damn. So okay. we can skip through the rest. Blah, blah, blah. This came out a year ago. They, they made uh, these pop shops. You could pop up and, and get them. You can't get them anymore. Sorry, rude dudes. Uh, but if you have, if anyone out there has tried this hot dog flavored popsicle, the cold dog, uh, let us know. Send us a talk back. Send us an email. Yeah, let them know. Anyway, yes, that is ridiculous. You got me on that one. I got to hand it to you. I got one for you. You got a second? Sure. Ain't doing nothing else. Hey, okay. So how about a crimer who pretends to be Pablo Escobar, flies to Russia, and successfully negotiates to buy a Soviet-era nuclear missile submarine? Wow. Dave, that's just the tip of this weird iceberg of underwater crime. Today, I want to talk about something called narco-subs. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. What he said is true. (laughs) David, to set the stage for us today, first up, I want to dive into, see the pun, underwater semi-organized crime. I see you. I see you. All right. We'll get into the cartels and the international mafia in a moment, but first an American crimer with a plan. I'd like you to meet Matthew Piercy. The 44-year-old was a good family man, a church-going citizen of Redding, California. I don't know if you know where that is. It's just north of my old hometown for by a couple hours. Central Valley, but north side, like on your way to Humboldt. Got it. Okay. It's a big into the railroad area. It's like a turnaround for a lot of railroads. So anyway, dude, uh, Matthew Piercy, big in finance. He had a company called Family Wealth Legacy, another one called Zola Financial. None of that really matters, but that's where he got busy with criminal schemes involving wire fraud, mail fraud, and money laundering, a classic trifecta. (laughs) Anyway, according to the FBI, quote, Matthew Piercy raised at least approximately $35 million from investors through Family Wealth, Legacy, Zola, and funds routed through Company 3, and paid approximately $8.8 million to investors. Of the remaining net investment of approximately $26 million, few, if any, liquid assets remain to repay investors. In other words, this dude conned people out of $35 million. He spent $8.8 million to keep the long con Ponzi scheme going, then ultimately liquidated $26 million for himself and his criminal confederates. This is all before the FBI caught wind of him. Now, this, Not bad for a day's work. Right? Seriously. Now, this guy primarily worked over the community he was a member of. Never smart, but that was his choice. He was uh, conning conservative Christian Californians and their families. He had a partner in his Ponzi scheme. Of course, he needed somebody like this, a 67-year-old evangelist named Ken Winton. On his Facebook page, Winton, he calls himself, quote, a God lover. That's with capital G, <laughs> capital L, like it's a job title. What do you do for a living? It's like I'm the a back go- of a... It's like the back of a denim jacket. Exactly. You can see it like on this. Yeah, totally. Big patch. God lover. Anyway, Winton, he liked to offer up empty platitudes about the importance of keeping God in one's life. For instance, he once posted on Facebook, God has been in the process of reconciling with humanity ever since Adam fell. Jesus was never God's plan B. Now, I don't know about all that, but I do know, like God, Ken Winton's plan B wasn't Jesus either. It wasn't even his plan A. His plan A was, of course, crime in the name of Jesus. So he got to it, and obviously he had Matthew Piercy with him. The two of them, they start working over all these eager believers. They con them to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Now, Ken Winton and Matthew Piercy, they would have gotten away with it, David, if it weren't for those pesky agents of the FBI. (sighs) You see... Starting back in 2019, FBI agents, they began sniffing around Piercy and Winton's Ponzi scheme. They began to interview some witnesses who then let the perps know that FBI agents were asking them questions. That made them nervous. Now, Piercy, he routed $3 million to a friend's medical business. That was the business three. So the FBI could not seize all of his assets. So now that he's secreted away $3 million, he's got his like bug out money. So by 2020, grand jury subpoenas, they go out to the investors in Piercy and Winton's businesses. This leads to way more questions, pointed questions, the kind of questions that are difficult to easily answer. So what does Piercy do next? Well, he's like, well, looks like I'm going to have to get on the old email machine. He starts sending out emails to investors to calm any of their concerns. Now, the emails, Dave, they said that he was in touch with President Trump and that everything was fine. Because, you know, that's going to play. Yeah, I've tried that before. It didn't really work out. Yeah, I got, so. I got the president on the red line. We're, we're good. Don't worry, people. So he asked all the investors to reach out to President Trump and to, you know, let him know that they also wanted him to make everything right. Because you see, there was nothing to worry about because it was all part of a bigger plan. Now, I have a highlight from the email that he sent out to investors, and I quote, Back in January, I compiled some unique perspective research about bank safety. The Federal Reserve Board asked the question, what would happen to banks if there was a global shock event? The unfortunate reality of the recent global financial shock has poured rocket fuel on the urgency of this critical situation. The only way out is for banks to open Zola accounts and stop the bleeding. I've already sent this letter to President Trump, and I would encourage you to send this to President Trump as well. Here at whitehouse.gov backslash contact. Feel free to copy-paste or drop it in the email. Now, in light of our emboldened focus to rescue the banking system, be advised I anticipate potential new levels of regulatory scrutiny. If you have any connections or contact with government workers, please let me know. 
This this kind of reminds me of, so I at one point set up an email address that was a uninvolved third party at gmail.com. I think I still have it. <laughs> That's great. And I encourage people, like if you have something going on at work and you know you want to get someone to step in and help, just just copy me, put me in the CC line and uh, and I'll, I'll jump in and adjudicate for you. And I didn't get any takers, but uh, Rude Dudes, that's still available as a service to <laughs> you. You still offer the service? You will adjudicate? Yes. Hit me up. Let, I, I mean, the same way this guy used President Trump. Yeah, let producer Dave be your President Trump. That's what we're saying. <laughs> well, now, out of all that stuff in the email, this line was my favorite, the last line. If you have any connections or contact with government workers, please let me know. Like, I'm imagining like people are writing back that they have a cousin <laughs> who works at BLM or someone at the Department of Interior. I mean, like, what is that going to do? Anyway... Four days later, to further calm down his now panicky and suspicious investors, Piercy, he cited the impact of COVID and the promise of a radical executive order by President Trump that was yet to be issued. And I quote, as you may recall, my firm has been a vocal proponent of an executive order from the office of President Donald Trump that would compel the big banks to open institutional accounts that offer great yield and liquidity. We take the strong and unapologetic stance that the COVID-19 related bank losses can be corrected and remedied by this common sense approach, which will provide greater liquidity and yield than what the banks are currently doing. One of the reasons you received a subpoena, spelled incorrectly, might be because of our firm's bold position and philosophy. We do not know why the government chose the timing of this COVID-19 pandemic to add this stress of the subpoena to your life. Like, what? Oh, my God. He's like, yeah, it's COVID-19. We're on the line of President Trump. I mean, I don't know what's going on. It's these big banks. They're the problem. We're trying to get to the bottom of this. This reads like QAnon financial. And it's like, sure, because sometimes you get unanticipated subpoenas all the time. Like you're mowing your lawn. Totally. Like, all of a sudden your email dings and it's something from the Department of Justice. I'm like, what? I, another so subpoena? Exactly. <laughs> you know how many subpoenas I got this last week? I got actually have like a circular file just from all my subpoenas. Now, the gist of his pitch to his marks, I'm sorry, investors, was that, you know, 2020 progressed. You remember it. It just kept getting weirder and weirder and it got more grim and more dire. And by all that, I mean for these investors and their money. But November comes around. FBI, the Justice Department, they're ready to pounce. They're ready to stop the financial bleeding. However, Piercy was also ready for the FBI. So according to the FBI's arrest complaint, quote, when FBI agents attempted to arrest Piercy in Reading this morning, he fled by car. First, he led law enforcement on a vehicle chase that went off-road twice in residential neighborhoods, including next to an apartment complex, and then later onto Interstate 5 northbound. <sighs> law enforcement tracked Piercy's vehicle from the air during the chase. Then, Piercy abandoned his truck near the edge of Lake Shasta, pulled something out of it. Now, Dave, I'm going to pause for a second. What do you think he pulled out of his truck? I mean, uh, AK-47? It's a good guess. It is America. But no, in this case, he went full-on poor man's James Bond. He pulled out his own personal submarine submersible device. What? Yes, Reading, rural people. I thought I told you about this. <laughs> Up Central Valley, they just have trucks and, you know, personal submersible devices for Lake Shasta. So he runs into Lake Shasta and he attempts to disappear under the water surface with his poor man, James Bond. Now, back to the FBI arrest complaint. Piercy. Wait, 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 wait. Yes. What are they using personal submersible devices for other than escaping the cops? Uh, like who? Like criminals or the cops or who are we talking about? The, the we this, this region of the country in uh, the Lake Shasta boat Oh, goers. I just mean, you know, coming from these areas, this is the land of like, you know, sea dews and, and jet skis and, and people just having random boats on small lakes. What I mean is you'll just be surprised what your friends may have in their garage. You're like, oh, you, you have your own submersible device. Of course you do. Why not? I, fair enough. I'll bite. I'm imagining he's got it. It's like a suitcase. Yeah, And all exactly. you do is like. Pull it out, press a button, and it turns into a submarine. Yeah, it's like an Iron Man device. It just springs <laughs> yeah. out. Now, like I had friends who had four-wheel golf carts. Like, why do you need a four-wheel golf cart that sprayed camouflage? Because, David. See, in, in uh, rural Rhode Island, I mean, we've got, you know, coastline and lakes. I just, it was just a lot of skiffs. Just oh. a lot of skiffs, a lot of John boats, as you say. Yeah, you know, we had John boats. That's usually for fishing. Like, but if you're mm -hmm. like, you know, a young man or a you know criminal on the run, you always want to have like a sea do, <laughs> a jet ski, or you know, a <laughs> personal go. submersible device. <laughs> so anyway, back to the FBI arrest complaint. Quote: Piercy spent some time out of sight underwater. So. This is like his escape plan is working. He slips under the water surface <laughs> and he's down there for some time out of sight underwater. How long was some time, David? Try Do you think it had like it like it came with a straw? 
And so like, <laughs> it was just a really long straw and so bubbles are coming up at the top. Yeah, he's got like a snorkel, but the snorkel's made out of bamboo because he didn't afford the, the good rubber one. The dude's down there for 25 minutes. Now, you oh. see, he had not made a perfect escape because Piercy was bedeviled by the nature of the human need for oxygen. Not only did it limit his range of his escape, but it also left a trail for the authorities to follow. See, while Piercy <laughs> was zooming along underwater with his personal submersible device, according to the FBI, quote, law enforcement could see bubbles. So they just follow this bubble track right across Lake Shasta, and the cops and the feds, they watch their perp putter his way across the lake, and then they wait for this doofus to surface. And when he eventually surfaces on the other side, they, he walks out of Lake Shasta, and they're just waiting for him, and he walks right into the waiting arms of law enforcement. Now, Dave, you're, you're curious like Elizabeth. You may be wondering, what's this cat's personal submarine look like? You know, like, well... Zarin. Darren, what's this cat's personal submarine look like? Great question, Dave. Well, for one, it wasn't a sleek tube. Now, remember I said earlier that this was a, uh, he pulled a poor man's James Bond? Well, this is what he used, the Yamaha 350LI underwater submersible device, which looks like this. Oh. <laughs> like a Kawasaki Ninja, basically? It's a joke. It looks like a lawn mower or no, like a lawn blower, but you took the like big front tube off and you're just going to push air. Like, I don't even know how this thing, I mean, yes, it creates some thrust and then you, there's two handles on the side and you hold onto it and it pulls you forward in the water. Now, when I say pulls you, it's like at four miles an hour. So yeah, it's like that, that, uh, that hovercraft that's in the back of comic book magazines where you got to add the vacuum cleaner yes, and it just like exactly. sits on top of the vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Now, technically, this is considered a sea scooter. Now, I didn't call it a sea scooter because that's misleading. There's no seat. Like, I think sea scooter, I'm thinking there's a seat. But apparently, sea scooters, aka diver propulsion vehicles, are designed to be used underwater as a navigation device that can pull a person around, right? So, ideally, yeah. the person is wearing scuba gear and is outfitted with breathing apparatus so they can stay underwater and they don't leave a trail of bubbles. Well, the sea scooter, it had first whirred into popular imagination in the underwater battle scene in the James Bond flick Thunderball from 1965. I'm not sure if you remember it, but there's this whole underwater battle scene. That's the first time people see it. They go, oh my God, that's so cool. Criminals, same thing. They're like, oh my God, that's so cool. They also, another group that liked it, militaries around the world. They often have these that they use, right? So Piercy's plan is to be like the military, but he's like, I'm a criminal, so I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to zip away from the FBI, aided by my underwater sea scooter going 3.7 miles per hour. <laughs> anyway, he gets out of the lake in his, by the way, he went in, into the lake in street clothes. So he gets out in his wet Levi's and he's standing there and the CHP and the FBI agents, they're like, hey, uh, your wife sent some dry clothes. Would you like to put these on? He's like, thank you guys. She's so thoughtful. And then and they like took him over to the EMTs and they checked his vitals. He was cleared, deemed medically fine. They rush him down the hill to Sacramento. They're like, okay, we're going to go take you down to the FBI local field office. He's like, okay. Now he gets formally arrested and now the dude is facing 20 years in federal prison. That's how much money he was stealing. So this was- I've like, got a theory. I, hold on. I've got a theory as to how they really caught him. How? It wasn't the trail of bubbles. It was the flop sweat. I think they trained the, <laughs> the police dogs to swim underwater, follow the flop sweat, and eventually they just went up and like nipped him in the butt just a little bit. <laughs> totally. They didn't want to put that part because the dog's biting him. And like, we could get sued. So let's, let's cut that <laughs> out right. of the story. I like, I like that theory. Well, when we're, let's take a little break, Dave, and then we'll be back. I'll get into international drug smuggling and the big boys who use actual submarines. Things are about to get wet and wild. Back in two and two. rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. As you know, the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every crime I've studied, I've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. You don't want to worry. You just want peace of mind. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. For every ridiculous robbery and theft we talk about, it's pretty obvious the crimes could be avoided with a solid security system. A good home security system keeps people prepared and aware. Simply Safe is that system. 
It was named Best Home Security Systems 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. And it doesn't just protect your home from crime, it also alerts you to fire, floods, and other emergencies. They offer sensors and cameras backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There are no contracts, and there's a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. That's simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Dave, we're back. We are back. I'm limbered up. I'm ready for another one. Good. You're all stretched and ready? Okay. So this oh, one yeah. is going to ask a lot of you. You're a lot of mental calisthenics. Now, uh, imagine drug running at a submarine in Detroit. A submarine in Detroit. Yeah, So I, I guess we're talking... Okay. Yeah, so th- th- is our words starting to conjure up a magic for the imagination? Because just wait, Dave. I'm going to get further into it. I want, first, I want you to meet Glenn Mousseau, 49-year-old of Windsor, Michigan. Howdy, Glenn. Now, Glenn is a professional international drug smuggler, a money launderer, and an all-around good-time guy. No, the last part, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I've never met the guy. He just seems like fun, as at least as a crimer, because over his 32 years as a criminal, Glenn Mousseau has racked up 47 convictions. Let's give a hand to Glenn. That may end up getting a perpy at the end of the year. Like, that's Seriously. a lot of convictions. The guy stayed busy, you know, and he is just not good at crime, but he keeps trying. You know, practice, 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 apparently, with Glenn Mousseau. Anyway, his primary place of business, the Detroit River. Yes, that's where he liked to zip loads of pot and money back and forth across the U.S.-Canada border along that wet edge between the two nations. Now, his loads were typically pot, sometimes cocaine, sometimes methamphetamines. He would river pirate his contraband across the border, but Mousseau wasn't fond of boats like the pirates of old, so he didn't cotton to yachts or sailboats. No, sir, not Glenn Mousseau. No. He would glide under the water's surface and slice across the darkened depths of the Detroit River in a submersible. Now, this wasn't always his M.O., because back in 1995, he was deported from the U.S. back to Canada, but the crafty Canuck, he snuck back over the porous, not nearly as militarized northern border. Now, back in America, he gets back to doing crime. Finally, on May 10th, 2020, Glenn Mousseau, he was behind the wheel of a U-Haul truck. He was in a place called China Township in Michigan. I've never been there, but sounds fun. Anyway, the officers who pulled up behind him, they were from St. Clair's County Sheriff's Office, and they were mad suspicious of the this man in the U-Haul who seemed shady as all hell. Generally a good guess that someone, yeah, dude in a U-Haul who looks shady is shady. Exactly. It's pretty much a guarantee. It's it, it's one of those things like if you go to like a weird uh, mattress store and you're like, these people seem shady. They are shady. <laughs> now, the suspicions were warranted when the deputies found a large plastic bag in the trunk and Mousseau said he didn't know whose bag it was, or where the bag had even come from. The deputies were like, yeah, okay, buddy. Now, why were they so doubtful? Because inside the bag was $97,000. Now, normally people know where $97,000 came from or that it's in the truck with them. He was like, no, I don't know. What is Gosh, officer, if I had known, I would have been spending this money. Yeah, but so I was like, oh, would you look at that? It seems like a lot of money, officer. <laughs> Now, the Michigan deputies, they promptly arrest Mousseau. He gets booked at St. Clair County Jail. Once in custody, officers are trying to ask Mousseau about the rented U-Haul truck with the large plastic bag with the 97000 in it that he had never seen and had no idea how it got there or even whose money it was. New Mousseau, he still did not have any good answers for the cops, so they just kept pestering him with question after question. I don't know what happened. I guess he got tired because eventually he did cough up some of the truth. So Mousseau tells the deputies, okay, I do know where the money has come from. <laughs> Turns out... 
It, it, it just came back from, uh, okay, but I'll tell you this. I am a drug smuggler. I am a money launderer. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Are you just saying all these? Like, yes, I smuggle cash in and out of your country. And they're like, it's like, I must have slipped my mind. I don't know. When you're asking me, I get nervous cops. You know, they're like, okay, buddy. Well, I have a lot of jobs. This is just one of many jobs. Yeah, I mean, I, this is my nighttime job. I thought you meant my daytime job. So he suddenly, he recalls how he was trying to smuggle the money back into Canada, and he was looking for a place to cross the border with his U-Haul truck with the 97000 in it. Now, Homeland Security gets called in because it's a border violation. They try to interview Mousseau, and his story gets more and more outsized as he goes. According to the court documents I checked out, Mousseau, quote, explained that he runs a smuggling company serving three criminal organizations in the United States and Canada. He's like, I am the importer-exporter. What? You know, I do contracts. <laughs> now, the money in the U-Haul, that was payment for 100 pounds of pot that had been paid for already, and he was smuggling the cash into Canada for the exchange. So the, the agents, at this point, they're struck by Musso's candor. They're like, this guy's awesome. <laughs> He's just telling us everything. So they ask him, how are you getting the drugs into the U.S.? You want to, like, tell us how your operation works? So what do you think he tells them, Dave? Do you think he tells them the truth? No, I don't think so. And I mean, like... I know, you know, laws of supply and demand and everything, but I'm kind of surprised that someone feels the need to smuggle pot into the U.S. Like, we got plenty, dude. Yes, well, I, I guess apparently in the Midwest, Canadian pot is the thing. So I'm from California. I don't know about Canadian pot. I mean, like, I've heard about it. I know that it exists. But I mean, like, it's not a thing that we're like, oh, it's that good BC bud or whatever. But I know people huh. like in like Indiana and Illinois, they would tell me about different Canadian strains. I was like, oh, okay, that's your guys' like Humboldt. Okay, cool. <laughs> so anyway, uh, did he tell them the truth? The answer is kind of. He likes to always tell half-truths. So he tells the Homeland Security agents that the drugs and the money, either one, they would be wrapped super tightly and then so that they were airtight. And also that means they were waterproof. So then he would pilot a submersible called a C-Bob across the Detroit River with the waterproof contraband in tow. Now, Dave, the C-Bob is no sea scooter like the one I showed you before. <laughs> Now, this is not like piercing his pathetic sha like Shasta escape. No, the C-Bob, this is a luxury submersible. Just like imagine me slapping the hood of a C-Bob like I'm a car salesman. <laughs> this bad boy will get the job done for your average smuggler looking to move a heavy load of contraband, my friend. Now, what will it take to get you in a C-Bob today? Now, this C-Bob, it's like a C-sled. The diver lies down. Oh, they, yeah. They hold it, and the twin engines power the C-Bob. Dave, it looks like this. Yeah, see, this is what I picture because there was one of the G.I. Joe guys. Uh -huh. This was his whole thing. Was yes. like, And as a kid, you wanted that. You didn't really care about the action figure, but you wanted that thing. Yes, exactly. This is totally action, like action kid dreams you're like oh i'll be hanging on to that and i'll zip along and nobody can catch me i mean it looks like it looks like something tourists would use in the caribbean or hawaii it's somewhere it's like oh i want to be tootling along looking at the beauty or you know moving 100 pounds of pot across the border so our man in the sea bob musso he told homeland security all about how he would waterproof a load and then he'd hop on his sea bob and he'd take his luxury sea toy for a glide across the detroit river and in fact he bragged that his smuggling outfit had three sea bobs. He's like, hey, man, we're like an adventure resort over here. <laughs> now, facing who knows how many years behind bars, Mousseau told the Homeland Security agents eventually all that he knew, or at least he claimed to tell them all that he knew. He, In fact, he informed the feds that he was down to cooperate with them. For instance, he told them about a big meth shipment that he had scheduled for the next day. And he said, if you guys want to pop in, uh, I could arrange that for you. You know, you can meet some more from my organization. So the feds were like, oh, okay. He's like, well, you'll need to make up your minds quickly. It's tomorrow. So the feds were like, okay, let's think about it. They talked to their bosses or whatever. The feds were like, it's a go. So then they release Mousseau, right? But first, before they get ready to do that, they're like, oh, we need to see your cell phones, right? So they kind of want to tag his stuff and they want to see what he has. So he agrees. He lets them search his two cell phones. The feds, they crack open his cell phones. They read all that their eyes can behold. They found text exchanges, chats between criminal confederates, GPS coordinates. They're writing all of this down, planned drug exchanges. There's also discussion of making a drone submarine that could attach to the bottom of an ocean-going ship and take a ride to Europe, where smugglers would then dislodge it and collect the coke that was inside. The I love it. Right? This phone was a wealth of information for the feds. They're like, I didn't even know about this. This is amazing. Thanks, Musso. He's like, oh, no problem. I have to tell you, we are partners now, right? So they're like, okay, Musso, we're going to cut you loose. Go make that meth deal. Call us in the morning and we'll be there for the raid, right? So Musso's like, oh, we, yes, of course. So he cuts his deal. They release him. He goes to make his scheduled meth deal. 
And that is what we in the storytelling industry, David, we call a bonehead decision because <laughs> Mousseau was released and checked into a local hotel, but there was no meth deal the next day. That was what we call a lie. Now, the, he was in the Baymont Hotel in Flat Rock, Michigan. The desk clerk remembered him well. Apparently, he made a memorable impression. The desk clerk later would tell authorities that Mousseau said he was going to dip out for a bit because he needed to attend a family funeral. That was his plans to cover skipping town. So... Around 3 a.m., security camera footage from the hotel shows Mousseau walk out of the hotel. And then once he's free of the hotel, that three hours later, around 6 a.m., he phones the front desk. And he says, oh, yes, I talked to you earlier. Well, I have, I've left suddenly, as I told you. I'd like you to go and uh, get all of my belongings in my room, gather them up, pack them up, and I will send somebody over to pick them up later. They're like, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. They make a note. Later that same morning, Homeland Security, they show up looking for Mousseau. They're like, hey, where's the guy in, like, whatever, 317? They're like, oh, he checked out. They're like, what do you mean he checked out? They're like, oh, you know, his room. So they're like, well, did he leave anything? They're like, oh, yeah, he abandoned it. So they consider, I don't know if the note wasn't passed. The hotel decides that since he left his stuff, it's been abandoned and they hand it over to Homeland Security. Or so they're just like, nope, I ain't uh, I read that. I'm not doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? I, I think that is probably more accurate. Hotel staff's like, I I'm not getting involved. This is Homeland Security, buddy. So sorry, we're a little motel. So in his belongings, the Homeland Security agents, they find five more cell phones. And he had a whole make a new identity kit. In this, it consisted of a stolen Canadian passport, an Ontario temporary driver's license, and a birth certificate. There was also a dry suit. Uh, that's a, like a like a suit for diving. It's like a wetsuit, but instead the, the the body is designed to stay dry as opposed to a wetsuit where the body is designed <laughs> to get wet. Right? Can I can I just instead pretend that it's a suit so that if you have a lot of flop sweat, it just wicks it <laughs> off of you? Exactly. So if you're gonna be doing crimes, you're not uncomfortable. <laughs> exactly. Your super dry suit. I like that <laughs> idea. I need to get a tailor. So anyway, he the Mousseau, he had left his new fake identity behind. Right. So what's he gonna do now? He still needs to cross the border to get back into Canada. He can't do it semi-legitimately now. So he's like, oh, I, I know the way. On June 5th at around 2.35 in the morning, agents from the U.S. Border Patrol, they spot this suspicious vessel in international boundary waters. It's a high-speed boat making a high-speed late-night crossing, right? Now, they know this is not just some normal pleasure seekers out just like zipping along in their Donzi. They're like, no, no, this has to be crimers making a run for it. So the Border Patrols give chase. They attempt a high-speed boat chase, right? On the Detroit River, the Border Patrol agents, they find that they, they, they cannot get close enough. They're closing distance, but this high-speed boat is way too fast. It's at night, and they've got binoculars. They're looking at them, and they notice, one of the guys with the binoculars, they notice two large bundles go over the side of the speedboat. So some of the agents, they peel off the speedboat chase, and they go to fish out the two large bundles. And what do they find? They also find an unconscious Mousseau. He's just floating oh, there no. in the Detroit River, KO'd by like the head slap to the water, I'm guessing. Or maybe <laughs> he was KO'd by the two large bundles themselves, which turned out to be 265 pounds of marijuana. That, or maybe he just had too much Little Caesars crazy bread and it just, it just, just totally blew up his system. Yeah. <laughs> it just backed up on him. He's like, oh... I'm going to get carbo loading. I'm going to take a little nap, a little Mousseau nap. So he, he has these 265 pounds of marijuana, like two floaties attached to his arms, and uh, they keep him afloat right in time for the Border Patrol agents to just fish him out of the water. He gets promptly rearrested, charged on a whole bevy of new charges now. He tries to get back with his previous attempt at cooperating with the feds. He's like, no, remember before when I said that we cooperate? Oh, let's talk about that some more, huh? And they're like, no, man, no. Come on, Mousseau, what with the river? He's like, oh, that is fair. So he pleads guilty, the pot charges, unlawful entry into the U.S. He receives 71 months in federal prison. Whew, this buddy. may be, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm uh, doubling down that I think this guy is probably the worst criminal we've had on, like the least competent criminal yes. that we've had on. <laughs> yes, he's, he is. I mean, like he just constantly gets busted and just constantly thinks like, what if I flip on everybody I know? <laughs> <laughs> and that like you're going to get one over. Like I love the idea that his, his little mind is going and going and going. And he's thinking like, okay, so they like when I cooperate. If I give them something really big, then that will help me out a lot. Yeah. So here, I'm going to give him something really big. And then like he walks away like, well, now I have to fabricate an entire massive drug deal to get them <laughs> to show up. Like what's going through his mind that night? Is he just like, does he start thinking maybe he's going to try to concoct it and then give up? Or is he just like, I'm running for the border now? I think he's just making like a run for the border like it's Taco Bell. I think he's like, look, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm taking my 265 five pounds of pot and I'm hoping I can start a new life in Montreal. 
oh, dear lord yeah well, respect now you uh you reacted to the submarine attached to the bottom of the boat right now those yeah. those are that's called parasite smuggling and i looked into this now, this, it's not the practice of sneaking blood-sucking insects over the border. Nope. This is parasite smuggling is an adjective. It's, it's, it is a growing trend. And it's now actually almost big business. Not quite, but almost. It's what the feds found on Mousseau's phone was plans for a drone vessel that would attach to the bottom of a ship. Now, the drone vessel was going to have these powerful magnets that could just uh, snap it attached, and then they could be released, and then all of a sudden you could just float it away. It could then putt-putt over to some people in a waiting boat somewhere else in the harbor. They pull it out of the water, and they float away. Brilliant plan, right? Sounds like a new San Francisco startup. Like, they're going to start selling (laughs) that as a taxi service. (laughs) Yeah, getting people across the seas. (laughs) Super cheap. So, no, parasite smuggling is Organized criminals, they love it, but they have to use scuba divers to attach the cocaine stashes to the ocean-going container ships. And they're Usually they're headed to Europe. That's always the question. It's like, how do we get this stuff through European customs? Now, the stashes, once again, I said, they're, they're secreted into like, torpedo-shaped containers. And then they're not always attached by magnets. Other times they are welded to the bottom. And then that requires underwater welders and divers. So you're getting into complicated, like, operations now. Well, I'll give you an example of one. Back in 2013, there was a French smuggling ring that had been using this tactic to, pardon the pun, swimming success. Now, they'd attached (laughs) eight-foot torpedo-shaped containers in South America to European-bound cargo ships. Their operation was only discovered by happenstance and a bit of dumb luck. The French port police from the Port de Fosse-sur-Mer, they were doing a patrol when they spotted this strange sight. There's tootling around the harbor on, on like an underwater scooter were a pair of divers. They followed the divers' progress, but rather than bust the divers, they decided to track them. So it turns out one of the divers was the mastermind of a big bank heist, so we should probably cover the Bank of France heist from 1992. So they follow this cat, and that way they can bust his whole operation. The port police learned the smuggling operation was super advanced and high-tech, the torpedo stash. It would be attached to the cargo ship hull, as I said, with powerful magnets. Then they could spot weld it otherwise. These guys were using magnets. They're like, oh, this is incredible, right? Now, the other designs I told you where they have the spot welding, that obviously is a little bit more difficult. But either way, what always is a question is, is, you know, if you want to get it across the Atlantic, the smugglers, if they attach it to a a big ocean-going container ship, they can now just watch their progress on open-source ship tracking apps. Oh, yeah. And they know exactly when the ship gets there. There's no more guesswork. They don't have to have a spotter sitting at the harbor. There's no bribes. They don't have to bribe the ship's captain. Nobody, none of the seamen board, nothing. They just do it open-source now, and then they wait. They get real-time updates. They show up for the progress of their smuggled shipment, and then, boom, the ship reaches harbor. Smugglers take a little go-fast boat or a dinghy or maybe even a John boat out, and then they just drop the parasite sub out and then boom done deal now sometimes they just they crack that thing open right there they're like you know what we deserve a reward yeah. so they just like <laughs> bust open it. the torpedo and just, yeah just totally. take a few sniffs like an yeah. 80s like an 80s cop show they're like let's cut that bag open see if this is the good stuff <laughs> oh boy no in reality their fins the yeah. uh, the the typical submarine stash it does not be said detach on its own and neatly pile it away as, as the Musso and these guys had planned usually divers have to go down they have to hand release the stash well the problem is is work Working at night in a harbor is dark, dangerous work. We were talking oily, murky waters. Divers often die doing this. So the cartels, they can't just throw in like some random flunkies with an oxygen tank and say, have at it, boys. They have to go and, as I said, hire the best divers they can. So they end up hiring world-class divers. For instance, there <laughs> was Greg a- Luganus. Yeah, like- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was this dude, Matthew Matty Thunder Hotter. He was an <laughs> Australian stripper and a world-class diver. So yes. Really interesting guy. He gets busted on drug possession charges after he attempted a risky dive to retrieve 91 kilos of cocaine from the Spirit of Auckland. Well, was at anchor in a place called Port Chalmers. He got busted. And so Maddie Thunder Down Under, he's just one of the many world-class divers who've been seduced away from their life as, well, in his case, a male stripper and world-class diver. And now they're like, oh, I got to respond to the siren call of organized crime. It just pays so well because most of the time they, these guys are getting away with it. And when they do get busted, yes, things can get real bad real quick. And that is if you don't die doing it. But most of the time it works for them. So you can see why they would do it. 
But yeah, it, and these guys, they they probably want to be like diving in old sunken ships and like finding gold and stuff, you know? Exactly. Like that's why they get into the biz. And this is kind of like that. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun and adventure and it seems like kind of dangerous and you feel like, oh, you're in like some kind of like, you know, crime movie. They're like, oh, I'm going at night down to the French Harbor to dive in and, you know, swim underneath a ship and detach cocaine. I mean, like, come on. That's it's cool all, as hell, yeah. Yeah, it seems cool as hell until you're arrested. Then you hear it read back to you. You're like, okay, that, that doesn't sound good when you say it. It sounded better in my head. Anyway, Dave, let's take a little break, and after this, we'll get to the wildest story yet. I promised you narco subs. We're getting narco subs, and this time, Pablo Escobar, he tries to buy a nuclear submarine from the Soviet Union. Yes! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Okay, Dave, we're back. How'd that happen? Where'd we go? I know, right? Just warm, delicious ads. Did those feel good for you? They felt great for me. The ads were like a pillow under my lumbar area and just like under my neck, a beautiful slumber. And the cool side of the pillow, no less. That's right. Now, you ready to talk about the dream of the true narco submarine? I will say this with no lie. I am as ready as I will ever be. Okay. Now, first, because I want you picturing the right thing. We're talking real, actual, factual submarines now. Do you know about the history of Columbia trying to get a cocaine subfleet going? I do not. This ever come up in your reading? No? Okay, mm-hmm. to, to be clear, not the country of Colombia, but rather the cocaine cartels of Colombia. At one time, the cartels, they wanted to have their own navy. They were like, you know what would be great is we had our own boats, but not boats. We want submarines, something for under the sea. Because this dream... It remained a dream for a long time, but it has since been realized. But never like in the true like Tom Clancy style hunt for the coke op October? No. Instead, Mm -hmm. real coke subs have been kind of embarrassing thus far, especially as an effort from basically a multi-billion dollar industry. I mean, the cocaine people, they got money. They can throw it at their R&D. But anyway, before we get to Pablo Escobar and his Soviet-era missile sub, first I'd like to take you into the eastern Pacific Ocean aboard a Coast Guard cutter. And to do that, I would like you to close your eyes. And David, I'd like you to picture it. My eyes are closed. I'm opening a course cutter, too. (laughs) The year is 2018. The month is June. And you, Dave, are aboard the Coast Guard cutter Monroe as it slices through the open ocean waves. It rises and then slams down after each wave's lift. Sea spray splashes against your cheeks, wetting your face in a semi-regular rhythm. Dave, you are a Coast Guard cadet. This is is a dream come true. This is your first big mission at sea. Good luck, seamen. Oh, wait, that's the Navy. Sorry, I should say good luck, guardsmen. Anyway, your boat is not out on a patrol. No, sir, you are on the hunt. You've been coordinating with a Coast Guard aircraft that's been tracking your prey and guiding you from above. The prey in question is a narco sub. The sub has surfaced, yet it's still difficult to spot since it's painted blue like the water. But from above, from the sky, its trail is easier to track. This Coast Guard aircraft 
It gives your cutter the all clear to engage. Your boat goes full throttle to catch the sub before it slips back under the surface of the sea and it disappears. The sub in question is not a military sub, yet it is fully capable of submerging for a length of time. This sub was most likely constructed in the jungles of Colombia before it was launched by the cartel. The reason your boat must be quick is that once the sub slips under the surface of the water, the sub is designed to be sunk, intentionally sunk. The evidence lost to Davy Jones's locker, while the crew escapes the sinking submarine only to be rescued by you in the Coast Guard, which they know won't let the crew drown. So your cutter closes in on the surface narco sub. Waves splashing, wind blowing, you feel the adrenaline pumping through you. Two smaller boats are set to be launched. You're ordered into one of the small boats and you attempt to go and board the submarine. This does not sound like a good idea to you. It's the middle of the open ocean. These are cocaine smugglers, most likely armed, perhaps heavily armed. But anyway, you steal yourself. You calm your racing mind as the small boat's engine does its job, getting you closer to the sub. Your boat races up alongside the narco sub. The engine's humming against the sea. You spot the poorly painted blue paint job of the sub up close, and then your boat bumps up against the sub. The engine cuts out. You can hear the seawater lapping against the sub. The guardsman next to you, he just jumps onto the sub. His boots slap the sub's steel skin. Water rushes past his boots as he grips tight to the sub. You watch, just amazed. The guardsman, he grabs hold of the hatch and he wheels it open as it winds with each revolution. Then he yanks open the hatch. You wince, expecting gunfire. You hear the guardsman yell down to the cocaine smugglers, everyone out of the sub! He sounds like some kind of hunky lifeguard working at a suburban pool back home in Providence. But the coke smugglers Baba listen, boom. right? They jump and crawl out of the sub. You are gobsmacked and so glad it wasn't you who had to jump onto the homemade narco sub. There you go, Dave. Oh, what an adventure. That was so good. Oh, my God. Now, aboard that narco sub, the Coast Guard would discover 700 kilos of coke. That's about 1,500 pounds of cocaine, if you want to do the math, or about three quarters of a ton of coke. So how many how many Ford F one fifties is that? <laughs> it's like half an F one fifty. Yes, <laughs> I've never thought of Coke in F one fifty terms, but we have to start doing that. Only placing it in F one fifty conversion rates. That's amazing. So the Coast Guard they estimated the street value at three hundred thirty two million dollars. But as you and I both know, those estimates are usually too high. But still a bunch of cocaine. So the dream of a narco sub, as it was realized there, was done poorly, but it was a very old idea for the cartels. It dates back to the 90s when they first started to really get into it. Now, the footage of you on your Coast Guard mission, when that drug interdiction, that footage hit the internet, it went viral. Folks were like, what the hell? The car the cartels have their own submarines? You know, because they didn't realize they've been trying they've been trying to do this for, you know, nigh on 20 years. But the idea of cartels with submarines of cocaine, it's like criminal sci-fi. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> now, clearly, it'd be genius for a smuggler to be able to hide in the ocean because, you know, oceans are like, what, 70% of the Earth's surface? I mean, you're increasing your surface area by an unfathomable amount. Anyway. And you can, A, run silent, and B, <laughs> run deep. Very true. <laughs> Now, really, this would be a game changer for them, but it's it's apparently still not a super common tactic. But as I told you, I want to tell you the, my favorite story of a narco sub, and of course, it features Pablo Escobar. Now, as I said up top, cartels, they had their eye on buying an actual, factual, Soviet-era Foxtrot-class submarine. But what may be even crazier is that the Russian military were more than happy to discuss prices, payloads, and even delivery schedules. Now, Dave, I'd like you to meet Ludwig Feinberg, a.k.a. Tarzan. That's is his... this guy my man, your man, or is he just a dude? He's just a dude, he, but his, okay. his street name, Tarzan. I'll give him that. Okay. He's got a dope street name. So the year is 1980, and Tarzan lands in Miami. He arrived at the height of the cocaine cowboy era in Miami. Organized crime is just doing gangbusters well in the Florida Southland, and that's how Tarzan, he gets a job working for the Gambino crime family. He becomes an enforcer for the mob. He finds that he's really good at beating people within an inch of their life. So he's like, oh, I think I can make a go of this. Maybe make a career out of that. You know, I could turn people into like a high-paying career here in America. And he does. And unlike boxers, he wouldn't even have to wear satin shorts. He's like, this works for Tarzan. So soon you enough- You set your own hours. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Be your own boss. He's doing well enough that he gets to go from a mob enforcer to eventually strip club owner. He's like, look at this. Oh, America. Really moving up. Right? So inspired by the very raunchy comedy of the day, Tarzan named his new place Porky's. 
Oh, boy. Yeah. And so being that he was Russian, his strip club quickly he's, becomes... Go ahead. I was going to say, he's probably so embarrassed now. He's like, oh, that did not that did not make its safe way into 2023. I can't even talk about my old strip club anymore. <laughs> yeah. My old strip club would be canceled these days, guys. <laughs> so, being that he was Russian, his strip club quickly becomes the choice hangout for the Russian mafia figures of Miami. Working out of the strip club, Tarzan graduates to being a respected, organized crime figure all on his own. He begins to be introduced to the rich and the famous, those who had a taste for the tawdry and the lurid. Eventually, well, for instance, the rapper Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice, who uh, is not just a fun name to say, but he would become key to this story because he was the one who introduced Tarzan to his future partner in crime, Juan Almeida. We would not have this story without Vanilla Ice. Strange corners. Hmm? Yeah, what I really want to know is, and you'll have to indulge me, if somehow Rockman lovers driving Lamborghinis are going to play into this, then you'll really have my attention. <laughs> I wish I could Just promise you, you that. Do. I'll see what I can do. Let's see if I can stretch it. Now, Juan Almeida, he was in the import-export business, which means he primarily moved exotic high-end supercars and super-pricey speedboats. Some of them legit, some not legit. Anyway... By this time, we're into the early 1990s, and the Soviet Union has just collapsed. So Tarzan, he's like, oh, I can finally return home to the new Russian Federation. So he does exactly that. He goes back there with Juan Almeida, and together they start exploiting the post-Soviet collapse to their benefit. They basically buy up anything that moved. They could think, oh, yeah. I can get top dollar for that motorcycle back wherever. I'll take that boat. They're taking up everything that people were buying at the end of the Soviet collapse. They're paying pennies on the dollar for this stuff. Or actually, I'm sorry, pennies on the ruble. But anyway, <laughs> these two unscrupulous international mobsters, they work their magic in the chaos of post-Soviet Russia, and they meet this equally moralless man named Nelson Tony Yester. I do not know how you get Tony out of Nelson, so don't even ask. I have no idea. We'll just say I mean, street name Tony. Yeah, how do you get Tarzan out of that, that other dude's name? Yeah, exactly. So... Anyway, Tony Yester, he is a bona fide international criminal. He was aligned with the Medellin cartel, which was Pablo Escobar's cartel. Now, when Tony Yester crossed paths with Tarzan and Juan Almeida, the three men came up with one hell of a business deal. Yester would broker the deal for Pablo Escobar. Tarzan and Almeida, they'd offer up their Russian contacts to make the deal. So what was the deal? Well, Pablo Escobar, he wanted to buy two Russian-made Kamov helicopters. If you're not familiar with this line of Soviet transport choppers, the Kamov, Dave, was a heavy payload chopper. It was a helicopter wow. perfect for moving hundreds and hundreds of pounds of cocaine. Like Beautiful. Yeah, I'm guessing it was most likely the Kamov KA-32, which is... Oh, beautiful, beautiful bird. Oh, no, it's often billed as, quote, the most powerful heavy load helicopter twin engine with coaxial rotor system with lifting capacity of up to five tons. It's a bad boy. Nice. Yeah, this thing, it looks like something Rambo would shoot down with a bazooka. You know, like twin rotors, <laughs> like big, wide, Soviet style. Anyway, the deal goes through. All sides are pleased. Pablo gets his Soviet chopper, starts slanging coke out of him. Almeida returns to Moscow for a new deal. He's like, oh. But this time, he doesn't say, like, I'm here on behalf of Pablo Escobar. This time, he says, I am Pablo Escobar. <laughs> he goes around Russia pretending to be Pablo Escobar. Now, I mean, if you can get away with it, it's a strong move. They didn't have the internet. They couldn't look it up. People were like, well, he looks Spanish to me. They're like, well, he's Colombian. <laughs> Whatever. He speaks Spanish. I don't know. Uh, I, I have to confess, I did. And and you, I don't I don't look Spanish. I don't have any Latin blood. Yeah, I did once use a fake ID of uh, my sister's boyfriend Miguel Sanchez mm -hmm. to to uh, maybe. So uh -huh. I've I've done this and yes. it worked. It did work. It does work. Yeah, I'm telling. You, even I could use like a Spanish name. People are like, okay, yeah, maybe Cuban. I don't know. Whatever. So I think we should all just keep that in mind. You can always pretend you speak Spanish. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, while he's bobbing around post-Soviet Moscow, Almeida and Tarzan they arrange a deal to supply the new capitalistic nation with all the cocaine that it can snort smoke or shoot. And everyone's like, yay! Not really. But anyway, this cat Juan Almeida and the former mob enforcer Tarzan, they both become heroes to the Medellin cartel, and specifically to Pablo Escobar. He doesn't even care that they've been pretending to be him. They're like, hey, you got the deal. That was great. I, I didn't get shot. Hey, you can get shot for me. Whatever. Imagine so, the free stuff, like just the incredible amount of free stuff you get if you tell everybody you're Pablo Escobar. Oh my god, yes. Or the stuff you can just take. Say, I am Pablo Escobar. They don't have to give it to you. You can just give it to yourself. 
You just roll in and like, <laughs> yeah. oh, you don't have any tables available? Well, I'm taking that one. You yeah. two, get the hell out. Yeah, like, exactly. Just sit down. I'm Pablo Escobar. They're like, okay, I'll be sitting over here. <laughs> so Juan Almeida, Tarzan, they now are working as the personal go-betweens between Colombia and Russia, working essentially for Pablo Escobar as his man in Russia. But soon thereafter, in the waning days of 1993, Pablo Escobar gets gunned down by the Colombian army. And they're like, oh, man, our bell cow. Now, in response, they're like, what are we going to do? They wait around a little while. And the newly formed Cali cartel, so the Cali cartel forms after the Medellin cartel basically loses its leader. They're like, oh, we're going to go off and become our own cartel. They reach out to Almeida. They're like, hey, remember what you did for Pablo? We'd like you to do that for us. We're going to go bigger than he ever did. The Cali cartel asked them to become their hardware supplier for another purchase of former Soviet military equipment. But the Cali cartel is like, we don't want choppers. We're not into all that. They're like, Tony Yester, see if you can get us um, a fully functional Soviet submarine. He's like, eh, yes. I'll, I'll ask around, see what I can do. They're like, yeah, but we don't want a nuclear-powered one. We don't have all the plutonium for that. Just one of the old diesel numbers. But make sure that it has missile capabilities. He's like, oh, done deal. So, also, cool hats. The, the submarine and yeah. a couple cool hats. Yeah, give us some of those fur hats. We want those for the boys. Now, <laughs> yesterday he tells the Cali cartel that the Soviet sub would cost a cool $50 million. The Cali cartel is like, whoa, whoa, that's a lot more than we thought. We were expecting a way lower number. But then though, they're free spending. I mean, they're a cocaine cartel. They're, they're making, you know, they, but they are, once again, a business. They have their minds on profit, on the bottom line. This, you know, drug dealing is not a nonprofit business. So these guys are like, you know, well, how much... Let's think about the return on our investment. How much tonnage of coke could we ship in a Soviet submarine? So Tony Esther's like, does the calculations. He's like, uh, according to my calculations, you could expect to ship about $40 million of coke per load. They're like, done deal. Okay. We'll, we'll take it. Yeah. We'll take, do you, can we get two? So the Tony Yester, he goes, he gets the go ahead from the Cali cartel. He goes back to Tarzan and Almighty. He's like, talk to your Russian contacts. Let's do this. They contact the Russian Navy and Tarzan is told it'll take a few days to find out if the deal can even be done. They're like, let's see, see if this, we can actually make this happen. It takes two days. Two days. After that, Tarzan picks up the phone and he hears, do you want submarine with missiles or without? Yes. So the Russian Navy was ready and willing to sell a Foxtrot class Soviet submarine. The sub had been at sea since the 1950s, but it was still ship shape and seaworthy. This diesel submarine was 300 feet long. It boasted 10 torpedo tubes. You know, in case like the cartel wanted to like sink like, a Coast Guard cutter, they had options. Or if they wanted to sink an American battleship, whatever. They had options. So the deal in place, Tarzan and Almeida, they flew back to Moscow. They met again with their contacts who introduced them to the high-ranking officers who gave the cartel fixers a tour of their super-secret submarine installation and a tour of the subs that they had in their super-secret submarine base. Tarzan and Almeida were like, hey, would it be cool if we took a photo with the sub to prove to the cartel that it's real and in good shape and not a scam and they're like no 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 i don't think that would be it yet 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 but the russian naval officers you know even though they were leery about photos of the super secret sub base tarzan was like you know money talks so how about 200 dollars? and they're like okay so that's For a sub selfie exactly wow. 200 bucks he got tarzan gets his photo now at one point according to tarzan and confirmed by Tony Yester, the Russians even asked the cartel, would you like to buy nuclear weapon? We have all sorts Ugh. here, right? So they were Terrifying. considering selling a nuclear weapon to the Cali cartel. Uh, now, how serious they were is left for you to decide. I don't know. But anyway, at this point, Tarzan and all of his movements and his business moves, they've drawn the surveillance of the American intelligence community and the DEA. He's on two radars. So the feds are so deep now into his crime circle that they have worked a mole inside who's telling them everything about what he's doing. It was the feds mole who spotted the photo of Tarzan and the Russian naval officer standing in the secret sub base in front of the submarine. So that picture eventually became his undoing. Because the sub photo, when the mole tells the feds, oh yeah, they're looking at a nuclear sub. They're like, wait, what? The feds go crazy about that, right? <laughs> so they yeah, he's just got a photo on his desk of him in a secret uh, Soviet sub base. They're like, okay, all, all, fla all green flags are waving now. They're throwing all the money, all the agents they can at this. I mean... I would do that. Like, if you had that kind of a photo, yes. you'd put it on your desk, right? <laughs> I'd put it framed. Are you kidding me? Yeah. 
So did you see your Christmas card? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Down the front door of my house. So he tells his handlers, the, the, the mole tells his handlers about the sub deal. They freak out. They go and they give him a bugged phone because they want to know everything he's saying now. So they're like, here, give Tarzan this bugged phone. The mole goes and he does. He tells him it's a jailbroken phone that he has. And he's like, oh, I got a bunch of these. You can now make international calls for free. That's all Tarzan <laughs> needs to hear. He's like, oh, free oh, awesome. international calls. And then he, he starts using the bugged phone as his primary phone call for all of his international calls. So now the feds are hearing everything. But regardless of this, in the end, it wasn't the feds who stopped the sub deal. It was Tony Yester. Because, you see, Tony Yester received $10 million of the cartel's money to deliver as a down payment on the Russian sub. Instead, he decided to not do that. He's like, this money looks really good in Tony Yester's wallet. I think I'm going to keep it. So he does. He kept the cartel's sub money. He's like, what are they going to do? Call a cop? But Yester, as he steals the, the $10 million, He just slips it right into his sheepskin wallet. He's just like... Yeah, he's like, hey, yeah. you got to find Tony Yester. Remember <laughs> last time you saw him, it was yesterday. And today <laughs> is today. So anyway, he hides out at a friend's house. He pays that friend ten grand to tell nobody he's there and to stay away from the house. The friend does it. So Tony Yester thinks he's golden. David, he was not golden. Because the Cali cartels showed up in Miami on the hunt for Tony Yester, and they're missing $10 million, as everybody knows they would. They found only Tarzan and his partner in crime, Almeida, and they're like, look, look, uh, we don't know where he is. And they're like, come on now, man. So the cartel, like, they're pumping these guys for information. I don't know if they were tortured or not. But anyway, these guys are on the hook for the $10 million. They swear on their lives, which, make no mistake, their lives are at risk. They swear on their lives that they had nothing to do with Tony Yester. They don't even know where that guy is. Eventually, the cartel believes them. And somehow, Tarzan and Almeida, they get trusted. They get to keep their lives. And even Tony Yester, he keeps his life. He managed to avoid being busted by the U.S. feds, who had them all under surveillance. However, he couldn't avoid prison forever because Tarzan and Almeida, they would eventually get locked up on other charges down the line, uh, unrelated to the submarine deal. They were all busted on charges related to their other dealings with the Cali cartel and the Russians. So it turns out the cocaine was enough to bust them. So Tarzan then flips an Almeida, and his testimony puts his old partner in crime behind bars. But then later on in this crazy unexpected twist. Tarzan then recants his testimony, which then sets his buddy free, so only he ends up having to do the time. Almeida gets released. Tarzan, mind you, he is still alive, Dave. He served out his sentence in America. Then Good for him. He did another one down in Panama, just to see if he, if he could get even more right. He has not gotten more right. Just to check out the facilities. He's like, I want to see what, what Panama has to offer. Yeah, what's the difference? How do they do it down here where the weather's warmer? So then eventually he goes back home to Russia. Now, the best as I can tell, he was last known to be living in Odessa, Ukraine, which, as you well know from world events, is a tough place to be right now. So I don't know if he's still there. I'm betting not. But there it is. That's the closest the cocaine cowboys ever got to getting their own true narco sub. They were so close, if not for Tony Yester. And they almost got a nuclear weapon out of it, too. What? So are you saying that Tony is still at large with the $10 million? Tony, uh, no. Yeah, as far as we know, Tony Yester managed to get away, as far as I could find. So How many, like, that's a, man, that's a whole nother podcast. Like, how many people managed to take money from the cartel and live? To tell the tale, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what's our ridiculous takeaway, David? Well, thank you for asking. I'm I'm glad that uh, that you the game recognizes game. Right? Here. Yeah. Tell Elizabeth for a change. Um, <laughs> you know, I was thinking about it, and I think it's uh, that Tarzan really represents the Peter Principle. How like, so? Do you, the Peter Principle is like you get promoted to your level of incompetence. Uh huh. He was a great muscle guy, yes, right? Like, totally. He was an absolute perfect enforcer. Mm -hmm. He and and he pulled a couple of moves and like got high up enough in the organization. And eventually, he reached the place where he needed smarter people around him and yes. didn't have them. Yes, he needed and, someone and was, else. It's like if he had just stuck with walking around impersonating Pablo Escobar and getting free stuff. Yeah, he probably would have been fine. Yeah, that's but a, it was the, that's like, a career. Yeah, it, that could last a lifetime. And, and you know, doing errands for Escobar, like all that stuff until you, you know, inevitably piss him off. But yeah. to that point, he would have been fine. It was purely like, you know what? I'm going to try to do this like serious international arms trade. I'm going to try to pull <laughs> off something that's never been done before. 
He needed a project manager. He yes. needed an accountant. He needed these skills that he didn't have. And that's where kind of the, the criming skills just ran out. Yeah. He ran out to string. Totally. He needed a business manager. He needed a fixer. He needed someone who was a dreamer. Maybe he needed a good woman in his life. I don't know, but he needed a, a partner who cared about him and didn't it would sit him down to tell him the truth. It was like, look, maybe go back to being a strip club owner. Yeah. He, he also needed a, a, like in the 80s movies, he needed a goofy guy with a hat. Yeah. He's like your sidekick. <laughs> totally. He didn't have any of these things. Yeah, he was missing it all. Well, um, what about you? What is your ridiculous takeaway, Mr. Zarin? Oh, thank you, Dave. See, that's just so neat, so orderly. I mean, boom, boom. Oh, I love it. Uh, my ridiculous takeaway is that how these guys get their criminal nicknames, like Tarzan. I want to know how a Russian guy gets named Tarzan. Like, was he like, you know, was he like a, a swinger? Was he like, you know, was somebody who was like, hey, he was known to go from vine to vine? Like, what's the deal that you get the nickname pit Tarzan? Hair. Pit Just hair. Just really long pit really hair. Really long pit hair. He had a taste for apes. He's like, well, you know, he always wants to go to the zoo. <laughs> I'm just curious about that. Well, there you go. That's all. That's all I got for you. So That was a great story. Thank you, Zaren. Thank you for listening. Well, you, as always, everybody can find us online at Ridiculous Crime on Twitter and Instagram. We have a website, RidiculousCrime.com, uh, where occasionally we have merch, so look for that. We also love your talkback, so holler at us. Uh, that's on the iHeart app. Or you can email us if you want at RidiculousCrime, gmail.com. As always, write Dear Elizabeth. And there you go. Catch you next time. Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zarin Brigant. Produced and edited by Rear Admiral of the Ridiculous Crime Navy, Dave Kustin. That's me. Research is by Marissa, call me Perestroika, Brown. And Andrea, the, call me Lady Glasnost, song sharpened tear. Our theme song is by Thomas, don't look at me, my fam is Finnish. Lee and Travis, communism was just a red herring. Dutton, the host's wardrobe provided by Botany 500. Executive producers are Ben, I'm in Rihanna's Navy, Bolin, and Noel, and I would like to join the Seven Nations Army, Brown. Ridiculous Crime. Say it one more time. Ridiculous Crime. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, Somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. 